So one of the most challenging, though, under and overlooked parts of the Bible, depending on who you ask, is the, the teaching on what happens after this. Not only what happens when we die, but is there more to this world in terms of its future? And um, in my overly ambitious sermon writing schedule-ness, it's been pointed out to me multiple times this week that I make the sermon schedule, we're going to cover everything that Jesus said about the end times in the book of Matthew this morning. So, I don't know how much time you have. Um, because it's interesting, Jesus talked about it a lot. Jesus talked about the eschaton a lot. You're like, the what? Oh, we're going to learn a lot of words today. It's going to be fun. Jesus talked about the close of the age that the disciples were living in. And one of the reasons that it's very confusing to, to study the end times is because uh, Jesus, in, in Mark chapter 13, in Matthew 24 and 25, um, he'll alternate between talking about what was going to happen while the disciples were still alive that was going to be very difficult for them to understand, much less understand in light of his gospel. And then he'll talk about the end times. How many of you know the word rapture? How many of you know that that word doesn't appear in your Bible? It is still... Ooh, that was good. This is a very biblically informed audience. That doesn't mean that the idea of the rapture is not a biblical idea, but one of the things that Christians often do that I'm going to push back on a little bit today for hopefully reasons you'll see in the text and agree with me in is we spend a lot of energy trying to imagine how this is going to happen and when. When the thrust of Scripture, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Matthew... 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Revelation, the thrust of those scriptures is not specifically how and when, though how and when are talked about. There are some other things that are focused on, and so you might be surprised on a Sunday morning that we have to talk about the end times a little bit. It might sound more like a lecture or seminar type series, but here's the thing. The role of the pastor is to equip the saints. As your pastor and your friend, I don't want the Bible to be confusing to you. And so I'm going to attempt to give some categories so that we can understand the words of Jesus. What we're doing the last couple of weeks and leading up to Palm Sunday is looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with a a kind of a basic blast to talk about the end times, and then he's going to expand later. Another way to look at Matthew, one way that I considered preaching it, was to look at the five big speeches in the book of Matthew. Um, As the Gospels go, Matthew's a little more interested in us knowing that the speeches Jesus gave. And one of the structural ways of outlining the, the book is the five discourses. Well, the fifth discourse is almost entirely about both what was about to happen right after the, uh, Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and then the end times in terms of the world being made new. Jesus didn't say in the book of Revelation, it's one, by the way, Revelation, singular. He didn't say, I'm making all new things. He said, I make all things new. How that happens, we know a little bit about. When that happens, we know nothing about. That that happens and the implications we know a lot about. I'm going to say something briefly about the book of Revelation. Um, it is first about allegiance. It is then about worship. 
It is then about the role of the church in the in-between times. Then it's about the end times. The book of Isaiah, and specifically Jesus, actually teach more directly about the end times than the book of Revelation, in my opinion. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study it. We actually, the reason I'm going to reference a whole bunch of books in the Bible today is because there are a whole bunch of places where this is talked about briefly for some of us and and expansively for others of us, depending on whether you care about this stuff or not. And the reason that I want to point that out about Revelation is one of the things that Jesus pushes back on, in my opinion, in the way that a lot of Christians understand the new, the end times, is the when and the how distract us from a number of things that we're supposed to be paying closer attention to. The when is this going to happen and how is this going to happen distract us from the beauty of what we get to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. And, more importantly, what are we supposed to do in light of the end times? The end times is often brought up as a way of reminding us how to live as followers of Christ while we're waiting for Him to come back. Heaven is uh, a separate plane of existence, and it's very important, and it is talked about almost exponentially less than the new heavens and the new earth. And the reason that we need to remember the existence of heaven is we're so tired of living in this broken world and in the presence of sin and death. And so we need to know that there is a release from that. And it exists. And it is good news to know that it exists. But what is more biblically attested to is that heaven will eventually collide with the earth. People sometimes push Christians on their old school morals and I'm like, it's so much, (laughs) we believe things so much more challenging than that. We believe heaven and earth are going to hit each other. They're like, where is heaven? It's a separate plane of existence. So how do they hit each other? I don't know. We believe Jesus is going to return on a white horse in a cloud. And you think our morals are funny? And maybe they are. But there are a lot of other challenging things that we believe. And so to really grapple with the Sermon on the Mount and specifically the teachings of Jesus, especially found in the book of Matthew, we have to spend some time talking about the end times. And I think the reason will surprise you. There are these parables that Jesus tells right in the middle of his teaching on the end times that are often taught outside of that context and they're very obvious parables in terms of what they mean and what they have to teach you and I about uh, the with God life. But they're taught right in the middle of the abomination of desolation and signs of the end of the age and things like that. Jesus loved to talk about the eschaton. And you're like, the What? Okay, listen, the eschaton is the end of time. And you're like, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Culturally, not you people, you're all good Bible scholars and you understand all these words, but culturally we think apocalyptic means the end times. It doesn't. It means to uncover something. Culturally, we think it's revelations, plural, which is wrong, it's revelation, and we think the revelation means something like that because it describes the end of time. After talking about allegiance and worship, And specifically the relationship of the church to Rome and then the end times. Revelation means something that's uncovered. 
But the eschaton is when this world passes away. What does that mean, passes away? Well, scholars disagree on that. In my opinion, Orthodox scholars take one of four positions, and I'm not going to outline them for you today. Study them at your leisure. Usually when I preach on the eschatology, some of my very favorite people in the church come up and argue with me about it, and I'm like, you've obviously studied this. You had me at hello. I don't care if we disagree about how it's going to happen. I'm so glad that... I'm serious. I start laughing and smiling. And for many of the rest of us, we don't consider this, and we miss significant portions of how Jesus taught while he was here on earth if you read the book of Matthew and you have no concept of the end times or how to interpret his teaching you're going to miss really profound and important sections of the with God life as he described it in the Sermon on the Mount in the middle of it chapter 7 verses 15 through 20 Jesus begins a little bit of preparing for the time in between his death and resurrection the time that he returns. He says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Anybody else hear Bugs Bunny when they do that? Like, it's just a wolf in cheap clothing. That kind of dates me, doesn't it, culturally? <laughs> Verse 16, You will recognize them by their fruits. You and I are supposed to be capable of recognizing false prophets, are we? Do we know the gospel well enough that when someone preaches it wrongly, can we tell? Do you know how to summarize it to your own heart and explain it so that when you hear someone misrepresents it, you're aware? It's a tall order. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. How about the word antichrist? Familiar with the word antichrist? Anybody know that term? So, when we're talking about the end times, oftentimes we're... We're talking about the man of lawlessness, maybe, in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians, and you're like, why is this important to me? You're going to have to hang with me for a little bit, because we have to get through some of the things Jesus taught in order to understand why it's so important for us and our Sunday afternoons in the next five years, whether Jesus returns or not. But Antichrist in the Scripture is more often and much more precisely someone who teaches contrary to Jesus. It is not so specifically... The man of lawlessness, though, that's interesting and worth studying. Some non-Christian philosophers have started studying this. My brother, who teaches philosophy in Chicago, contacted me and he said, Have you heard of the Catacon? And I was like, Is that like Comic-Con for cats? Like, what, what are you talking about? You know, the Catacon is this philosophical idea that something is holding back the end of time. And there's a force and continental philosophers in Europe wanted to give the force a name and they took it from Second Thessalonians even though they're not interested in the Bible's teachings on this. So this topic fascinates us. This is part of the reason that I am troubled as a pastor sometimes because I think that some of you expect so the teaching in Matthew chapter 7. I think some of you expect me to be more spiritual than you. I can tell because when you ask me to pray it's because you think I have a bat phone. I don't. My prayers are worth the same as your prayers. And if you're telling me and I'm the 11th person that you told, then great. Good. I'd happy to be another person praying in your life. 
And sometimes the way that you say reverend or pastor, it unnerves me. You think that I maybe sin less than you. I probably don't. But it is important for us to expect our teachers to believe what they're teaching. If you have had a teacher of the gospel fail in some way in their life, you were then troubled by their teaching. And what, this is the reason that you're troubled. Because in some measure they were teaching contrary to the gospel in terms of them not believing it. So don't expect me to be more spiritual if by more spiritual you mean to sin less. But you are to expect me to believe what I am teaching you and anyone else that takes this pulpit. Which is part of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7. And he's going to go on to say that no one knows the time. So Jesus loves to talk about the eschaton, but not the way that we often talk about it. Not that way. And that's a real basic way of knowing whether a teacher is a good teacher with respect to this issue or not. If you listen to someone and they're constantly talking about when this is going to happen, in my opinion, and biblically, and I think according to the words of Jesus, they're not a good teacher. In the 80s, there was a, a writer named Hal Lindsey. Did everybody read Hal Lindsey? Late Great Planet Earth. Remember 1987? I've referenced this before in sermons, so it's okay if you know where I'm going for a couple minutes. You can tune out. Not everybody was here that Sunday. In 1987, he wrote, 87 reasons the rapture is going to happen in 1987. As far as I can tell, it didn't happen. What did he write in 1988? 88 reasons the rapture is going to happen in 1988. And if I was friends with Hal Lindsey... I would love to go stay at the beach house that he probably purchased with the millions of dollars that he made describing the how and the when. And listen, studying the words of Jesus, the teaching on the end times, that's good. But I do not believe we are to focus on the when and the how because Jesus said, I don't know. And no one knows except the Father. And we had another movement. Perhaps you heard of the Left Behind series. And it's a fictional series. If you enjoyed reading it, good. The first book was one of the fastest I've read a novel. It was kind of a page turner. But it's about how and when. And that's not Jesus' focus. I kind of think we're about ready for a new series. I don't know what it's going to be called. I mean, the, the Left Behind series was a while ago. Hal Lindsey was in the 80s. I think we're ready for the new teacher and who knows who it'll be. And if they write it well and you enjoy reading it, that's fine. But Jesus pushes back on us expecting to understand how and when. And I just want to say again that what we believe about this is challenging enough without us needing to add imaginatively, especially with respect to when and how. One of the things that really troubles me as a pastor is the way that occasionally religion and politics mix with respect to the end times. God is entirely in control and entirely unstoppable and entirely good and it is not up to our political systems to either slow down or speed up this process. That's not part of it. If you want to get the uh, rough draft version of that from my notes, it's a little more pointed. Hopefully you know what I'm, you're picking up what I'm putting down here. So we 
watch. Now, the point I made that I want to be really clear about is if you like a gospel teacher and they're overly focused on when, please be very cautious with them. A lot of you listen to other preachers and good. It is good to study the Bible and if that's a good way for your brain to interact, terrific. And if they're focused on that, I believe they're teaching contrary to the gospel. So keep an eye out. Okay? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to watch, and by watch, we're supposed to know if a teacher is representing the gospel of Christ or not. John wrote about that. Jesus referenced it here in Matthew chapter 7. And by watch, it means we're paying attention. This is actually a, a, a major reason to study the scriptures. So that we understand if someone's teaching well or not. It's not only listening to good teachers, which hopefully I am one of. It's also learning to discern for ourselves. I sometimes wonder how many of us should be serving as opposed to how many of us should be studying the Bible. It's obviously a both and, but one of the reasons that we study the scriptures is because Jesus expected us to be able to discern whether a prophet or a teacher, by prophecy in the New Testament means uh, speaking truth in love, Talking about the future is called talking about the future. Prophecy is is speaking truth. And Jesus expected us to be able to discern that. I can't always discern it. I've told this story before, but growing up in Oklahoma in the 80s was a tricky time to figure out about teachers. Oral Roberts told us that God was going to kill him if we didn't write Oral a check. I'm 11, and I'm like, that doesn't sound like God to me. Then he took the money and put the bulk of it to cancer research. So I'm like, we're supposed to be able to consider the teacher and whether they represent the mind and the heart and the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. They also had these giant praying hands. If you've ever been to Oral Roberts, probably most of you have not. And I was sure those were the Incredible Hulk's hands. I did not connect to those. Because <laughs> they were dark gray, you know, and that was the Lou Ferrigno era. Of the Incredible Hulk, but they're up, but they're so big and strong looking. So I want to offer you a kind of quick tool for understanding some of Jesus' teachings on the end times. And this totally assumes that some of you care to read the Bible. And I know others of you won't. And it's still my role as your pastor and friend to help equip you. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, a little bit like in the book of Daniel, very much like in Mark chapter 13, which reflects this, very much like the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to go back and forth between talking about 70 AD and the fall of the temple and the distant future. If you know that, it's slightly less confusing to go through those texts. And what you need to study those if you want to be a thoughtful Bible scholar is not a book on the end times. You need a good study Bible that'll walk you through the alternating timelines that nobody agrees on, by the way. And the reason I tell you that is not because I think it's so interesting, but because in the middle of it are two parables that everybody understands. So I'm just going to read the the headings in my Bible. 
that are, that are on either side of these two parables. Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. I'm in Matthew chapter 24. Signs of the close of the age. Which age? Good question. The abomination of desolation. Referencing Daniel and the coming of the Son of Man. The lesson of the fig tree. No one knows the day or the hour. Which is why I tell you that if someone tells you they know the day or the hour, you should stop listening to them. Because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. Then he tells a story of these ten women who want to get married. And you're like, what? Why is Jesus telling a story of ten women who want to get married? And five of them are prepared for the day, and five of them are not prepared. Then he tells a story that's referenced all the time about men who are given money and expected to invest it for their boss. And some of them do a better job, and one of them gets scared and doesn't do it. And then after that is the final judgment. What? Why are these stories in the midst of all this teaching about the final judgment and the close of that age that the disciples were living in? Because what we do, Christians, is we don't wait to follow Jesus. We don't wait to pursue a kingdom life. What's a kingdom life? Go through the headings of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't wait to be generous with what's been given to us. You know, culture has a lie for us that we will become more generous when we make more money. Sociologically, the opposite is true. Did you know that? Typical humans give less and less as they make more and more. Whether you find that interesting or not, the absolute strongest push of the end times teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 24 and 25, in 1 Thessalonians, in the book of Revelation, is don't wait to be generous. Don't wait to forgive. I believe the strongest teaching of Jesus generally in the Sermon on the Mount is to not seek to cause others pain for the pain they have caused to us. You're like, you already taught on this. Yeah, I did. It's coming up again here. Whatever turn the other cheek means in the entirety, it at least means we do not retaliate. By choosing to cause pain when pain has been caused for us. And you're like, what does that have to do with the end times? The end times, the the parable of the ten women, the parable of the talents is pressing. Don't wait to live this way. Don't wait to trust Christ with all of our being. If Jesus rose from the dead, the Sermon on the Mount is the most important speech ever given. And he spends a significant amount of energy talking about how we use our words. Not only, you've heard it said, don't murder, I say to you, don't be angry with your brother and don't call him a fool. You're like, gosh, I call people a lot worse names than that. Don't wait to learn to use your words in love and for love. Perhaps the greatest power given to the humans in this room is how we do and do not use our words for love. Don't wait to learn about purity. Oh, that sounds fun. We're actually going to talk about that more in depth next week. Because Jesus talked about it a lot. For single people and for married people, there is a pure and a holy life. Blocks us from destruction. It's a way of enjoying the joy that he purchased on the cross. And the reason I'm bringing that up in the midst of the teaching on the end times is don't wait to learn purity as God defines it. 
don't wait to learn to pray. We are given the gift of communion with God in prayer. Jesus taught how to not do it and taught how to do it. It's modeled and taught and referenced throughout Scripture. And in the end, I believe a right teaching on the end times reminds us not to wait. You know how I keep waiting. I keep thinking I need to read another book on prayer. How ironic. Jesus taught non-metaphorically about how to enjoy the joy, the with God life, in prayer. One theologian said, pray yourself into prayer. The other reason I'm so excited to teach on the end times is because when we focus too much on when and on how, we miss the promise. Do you know what the promise is? You need to know what the promise is. You need to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be rewarded. You don't do it for the reward, but it is unbiblical to not talk about the reward. If you are a follower of Jesus... The wrongs perpetrated against you will be made right with interest. How hard is your imagination stretched right now? Mine's pretty stretched. Followers of Jesus, you are invited to a feast with the best food and the best drink and the best company. And hear me, I just read this a few days ago, but I totally agree. Here's the reward at the table. Your story will be told rightly. Have you suffered? Have you been sinned against? Have you hurt others, but part of that was because of your poor mentoring growing up and you didn't know any better and you longed to repent and make things right and you can't anymore because it's been too long? Can you imagine your story being told right in the kingdom? The author of the book I was reading encouraged us who were reading to spend some minutes trying to imagine that for me uh, that the picture that popped into my mind was my uh, grandfather dad sorry this is going to get emotional for you we live stream for missionaries and my dad watches so this is probably going to be interesting for him so sorry all of you had to hear that for me to imagine my story being told rightly at the feast of the lamb my grandpa puts his arm around me And he says, yes, this is all true. It's all true. The term that... um, some use for this is the paragenasia. The Revelation chapter 21, when heaven and earth collide, after Jesus returns, he does not make all new things, he makes all things new. 
And what we sang at the beginning today and what we're about to sing again is true. You're a follower of Jesus. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will feast with our hearts restored. We will feast and weep no more. That's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us to believe? And to believe more deeply. Not only that you're good, that you love us and like us and call us your own, but that you will indeed do what you said you would do. That you will return and restore and renew all things and set them to rights. In between now and then, Lord, comfort us who are tired of sickness and sin and death. Comfort us, Holy Spirit. As we sing, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help our imaginations to not only believe, but to rest in the future promise. Amen.